Alan Jones, direct to the people, right across Australia. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us. Now, listen, in language you'll understand, can I just say immodestly, we are going gangbusters, or you are. The numbers tuning in here and overseas are extraordinary. We're very grateful for your support. A special mention, though, to our viewers in Croatia. Amazing. Everything's on the website in this pioneering digital world, alanjones.com.au. If you're listening to me on your mobile phone or computer, that's where you go. But if you've got a smart TV, just go straight to YouTube, search for Alan Jones Australia, click on the live stream link, and there we are. 8 o'clock, Monday to Thursday. Each program is on the podcast the following morning at 6am and there's an Alan Jones comment at 7am. So it's all easy, isn't it? On the website, alanjones.com.au. And by the way, you'll find all the past editorials, interviews, the whole shebang. And on all the platforms, we welcome your comments. I can't share all of them. There are thousands and thousands of them. But this is the new media world. Though I have to say in the world outside, nothing seems to change. Are we really going to have another election on this wretched, discredited issue of climate change? How many elections have been dominated by climate change? And in how many of them have the political agitators lost? Barry Jones is a magnificent intellect, a former ALP national president, a former federal MP. He once told me that in a flight from Sydney to Argentina, he read seven books. He has bought into all of this, accusing the Labor Party and their climate policy of being politically dumb. Well, I'd agree with that, but not for the same reason volunteered by Barry Jones. And Barry said, have we nothing to say to millions of young people, many of whom will vote for the first time in 2022 and who regard climate change as the central issue, unquote. Well, yes, Barry, we are saying plenty to these young people. We're frightening them witless, listening to Greta Thunberg and others. But Barry seems to have got into bed with this Climate 200 mob and the assertions are breathtaking. You've got Chris Bowen, the opposition climate change spokesperson, saying, quote, every Australian feels the impact of a changing climate from the Western Sydney households with soaring electricity bills, from increasing heat waves, bushfire ravaged communities or agricultural families dealing with prolonged droughts and falling farm productivity, unquote. Uh, Chris why don't we also add the likelihood of a hot Christmas in Perth onto climate change or the storm that battered the disaster-prone Philippines where the death toll has climbed to 40, a tropical depression. Come on, Chris Bowen, that's got to be climate change. And what about the flooding in Indonesia where sadly at least 30 people have died? That must surely be climate change. This is the madness. Everything is climate change. Is Chris Bowen saying that these things are related to climate change? Where is the proof? There's none. What is the issue here? Carbon dioxide? 0.04% of the atmosphere? Yet Barry Jones is saying that Labor must connect with the lived experience of climate change. Farmers, gardeners, bushwalkers, anglers, bird watchers, firefighters, aviators, they name them all, beekeepers, vignerons. Why stop there? Where then does Patrick Moore stand? Patrick Moore was the co-founder of Greenpeace. Greenpeace is described as the leading independent campaigning organisation to fight for a green and peaceful future. Patrick Moore's written a book called Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, unquote. And he says, it dawned on me one day that most of the scare stories are based on things that are invisible, like carbon dioxide or very remote, like polar bears and coral reefs. Thus, 
The average person cannot observe and verify the truth of these claims for themselves. They must rely on the activists, the media, the politicians and the scientists, all of whom have huge financial and or political interests in the subject. He says, this book is my effort. Listen to this. After 50 years as an independent scientist and environmental activist to expose the misinformation and outright lies used to scare us and our children about the future of the earth, unquote. Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace. I should point out that the so-called fact-checkers are in overdrive seeking to discredit Patrick Moore's conclusions. But put simply, Patrick Moore expresses doubt that human activity and carbon dioxide emissions are the main cause of global warming. And he argues that the scientists who have said that he had misrepresented their findings or conclusions were just CYA merchants. CYA is short for cover your ass. Said Patrick Moore, the last thing they want to be associated with is climate scepticism. As he said, if you're associated with climate scepticism, you're all of a sudden a denier and you're all of a sudden out of research money. So Barry Jones, read the book. What have you been swallowing? You'd expect better from such a voracious reader. But then you've got these endless conferences. Witness Glasgow, where that Gabfest wanted to not demonise coal-fired power, but retire it. But the International Energy Agency now tells us the global demand for coal will reach record levels next year, driven by huge growth in China and India. Indeed, the International Energy Agency is predicting at least three years of surging demand for coal, just weeks after world leaders failed to agree on a phase-out of that very resource. Well, as the International Energy Agency rightly said, all evidence indicates a widening gap between political ambitions and targets on the one hand and the realities of the current energy system on the other. The agency said, and I quote, this disconnect has two clear implications. Climate targets are getting further out of reach and energy security is at risk. Well, coal demand worldwide, including users beyond power generation, such as cement and steel production, is forecast to grow by 6% this year. And overall coal demand, we're told, could reach well over 8 billion tonnes by 2024. Australia will retain its crown as the biggest global producer of metallurgical coal, which is used for steel making, and consumption of thermal coal used for power generation will rise 7% this year. Now, we've got plenty of that. The simple conclusion is that this mob travelling the world, preaching their alarmism and frightening the tripe out of children that somehow we are destroying the planet, is completely at odds with reality, to say nothing of the economy. Our government's commodity forecaster predicts that thermal and metallurgical coal exports will contribute $57 billion to export earnings in the 2022 financial year, up 46%. Now, I wonder if Barry Jones or Chris Bowen can tell us where that $57 billion will come from if they have their way and banish coal production. Look, let me make the simple point. Labor has disqualified itself from any entitlement to govern in the past because of the nonsense on climate change, which Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, has called the misinformation and outright lies used to scare us and our children about the future of the earth, unquote. Well, let me tell you this. If Labor keep up the misinformation and outright lies, the voter must surely disqualify them again from any entitlement to govern. Just on the Labor Party and Labor governments, what do they stand for? For example, in Queensland, there is a Labor government. They're hand in glove with all this Albanese, Chris Bowen climate change nonsense. 
and Queensland are in debt. Yet record coal prices are propping up their budget. The royalty revenue this financial year is predicted in Queensland to double. 2.05 billion to 4.64 billion. And of course, away they go on more government spending. In fact, spending in Queensland is expected to be $2.58 billion more than what was forecast six months ago. And what about this? The public service wage bill in Queensland is forecast to be $29 billion next year. It means that by mid-2023, 40 cents from every dollar the state spends will go to paying the salaries of public servants. How many? 238,583. That's one public servant for every 21 Queenslanders. And they boast about government debt falling and their budget deficit declining. But they've got no shame in accepting and admitting that their royalties from coal will more than double. But aren't these the people who demonise coal-fired power and want to retire the whole coal industry? You've heard me for years go on about the disgrace that is the new Ackland coal mine. It's an expansion. This is where I grew up. A little one-teacher school and this mob New Hope or New Ackland Coal have removed every house from the town so they can say, well, what's the problem? No one lives here. I don't need any lectures, by the way, on coal mining. Yes, there are coal seams underground at Ackland, but this mob want to go above the ground and destroy prime agricultural land. When my family were broke during the drought in the 50s, my father went to work in a coal mine underground. The shafts went down miles. He dug coal in water up to his waist. He suffered from arthritis for the rest of his life. My birthplace, Ackland, has been destroyed by greed. It is confronting to see your birthplace destroyed. As I said, I'm all for coal mining, but I've never been an advocate for greed. This mob New Hope want approval for stage three of the mine. But you see, underground mining is dearer than open cut. When my father worked underground, the farmers worked above the ground. Money for everyone. This mob came in, I call them vandals. They bought every home in Ackland, bar one, buy thousands of acres of beautiful farming land, remove the homes so it looks as though no one ever lived there, prime agricultural land wasted, to serve the interests of a mining predator. In fact, at the first land court hearing into this issue, New Hope or New Ackland Coal, as they call themselves, produced their soil expert. But during cross-examination, he was forced to admit that the land around Ackland was amongst the best 1.5% of agricultural land in Queensland. Why they bought all the land? Simple. They want the coal that is under some of the land and the water that's under the rest. Water for nothing forget the farmers. This all went to the Land Court of Queensland back in 2017. The farmers won. There were 100 days of evidence and submissions. New Hope were given every opportunity. Barristers and top QCs costing tens of thousands of dollars lined up against the battling farmers for whom we all pitched in so that they could mount a case. The Land Court, first Land Court, reached scarifying conclusions. Quote, it is beyond doubt, but it said, the court, that the mining proposed by New Ackland Coal in revised stage three, will cause disruptions to aquifers in the Ackland region, which will have an impact on nearby landholders for hundreds of years to come, unquote. That first land court unsurprisingly found this new Ackland mob, their, quote, past performance had not been satisfactory, unquote, and that their, quote, existing operations have adverse impacts on surrounding people's physical and mental health and on noise and dust levels, unquote. I could go on. There were pages of this stuff but this mob have money, the farmers don't. The coal interests appealed the first land court decision and the Queensland Court of Appeal amazingly found that groundwater shouldn't be considered. 
an outrageous situation which would never have been intended by the drafters of the legislation. You can't assess a mine in relation to criteria like environmental impact and public interest if it's specifically excluded from considering groundwater. So in the Court of Appeal, the farmers lost. I should point out that the first land court found, quote, New Ackland Coal has already commenced its stage three mining activities, unquote. Totally illegal. No approval for stage three mining. That is, they've done this without a mining lease and without environmental authority, but no action's taken. Last year alone, New Ackland Coal had been issued penalty infringement notices for approximately 34 exceedances of the noise limits over only a few weeks of monitoring and from drilling activities. New Hope argued in the first land court that if they didn't get their way to expand the mine, it'd cost 3,550 jobs. Then they said, oh no, hang on, 1,556 jobs. The first land court found these figures, quote, are not supported by current expert evidence, unquote. Indeed, one economic writer following the first land court decision against New Hope wrote, and I quote, this week in Brisbane, a member of the land court, Paul Smith, handed down a scathing 459-page determination against New Hope's subsidiary New Ackland Mine. Smith rejected an expansion application for the New Ackland coal mine, and in doing so, he peeled back the layers on an arrogant and bullying corporate culture New Ackland Mine was not afraid to use everything in its power to destroy a local town. Rather than engage with local residents, it said, the company bought up houses in Ackland and destroyed them. Unquote. Well, now remember last week, this mob were given conditional approval to expand the mine. Yet Judge Smith, the member of the First Land Court, said, the actions of New Hope contributed to the angst between the company and the opponents of the mine. The New Ackland Mine downplayed its part in the destruction of Ackland. The first land court found, by removing most of the buildings in the town, it has in all likelihood killed off any chance of the town of Ackland surviving. One wonders whether the removal of the buildings in Ackland has been a deliberate ploy by New Ackland Coal. New Ackland Coal has acted quite intentionally like a bull in a china shop. Well, the first land court also found that the objectors, that's the farmers, were honest, hardworking, regular folk, and that New Ackland had, quote, a tendency to treat anyone who disagrees with it in a dismissive and disrespectful manner. Well, now last week, a differently constituted land court has overturned all of that and given conditional approval to the expansion, even though this mob are currently illegally mining anyway without a licence. So a government in Queensland, which is opposed to coal mining, gives a licence to an outfit which has had scarifying judgments made against it and is destroying what's been acknowledged as amongst the best 1.5% of agricultural land in Queensland. Well, farmers are farmers and they're not giving up and I know they're listening. So I say, can I say to them, a lot depends on the Queensland Resources Minister, Scott Stewart, and the Chief Executive of the Department of the Environment. They'll have the final decision. But you see, this time, the newly constituted land court only had a tiny portion of the evidence available compared to Member Smith when he heard the whole story which led to the first land court on the 31st of May 2017, recommending that stage three of the mine expansion of New Ackland be rejected outright, a recommendation to government. Then with money, New Hope went to the Supreme Court to seek an injunction against the government so that it would not act on the recommendation of the land court. The Supreme Court threw New Hope out of court, but they've got money. They kept appealing. The matter even went to the High Court. The High Court then threw it back to a newly constituted land court, and here we are. 180 degree change from the original land court decision of rejection, 
when this newly constituted land court had very little of the evidence originally heard. There were 98 days devoted to the original hearing and Judge Smith on paragraph 110 of his conclusion said, quote, having sat through 98 days of hearing in this manner, I've been impressed by the sincerity, acumen and demeanour of the objectors who represented themselves at the trial, unquote. I repeat, this mob just keep appealing, New Ackland Cole. At one stage, their submission was 1,437 pages. Farmers had to try to digest that. They submitted a stage three environmental impact statement. Years ago, it was refused. The first land court originally pointed out that New Ackland Coal's submissions had deficiencies, errors and inaccuracies. In short, they were misleading the first land court, which rejected everything from New Ackland Coal out of hand. This whole saga has been like a football match. New Hope has spent any amount of money, lawyers everywhere, farmers only had one thing going for them, the truth. The first land court, following 98 days of hearings, smashed New Ackland Coal. And here we are, but it's not over except this latest land court hearing leaves much to be desired. For a start, only a portion of the evidence before the original land court, only a portion of the evidence was heard and, believe it or not, objectors were only able to submit evidence about noise and dust, not water. And even then, there were very few witnesses. If the ultimate decision makers consider the bigger picture, the mine's poor past performance, even beyond noise and dust, that they are illegally mining the West Pit that they've removed almost all of Ackland's houses and infrastructure. If the Palaszczuk government weighs up the loss of good agricultural land and gives due consideration to the issue of water, then New Ackland coal should be told to pack up. Remember one thing, the Queensland government still has the opportunity to refuse the application for an associated water licence. This disgraceful matter is not over, thankfully by a long shot, but it's a David and Goliath battle. Big business with money, taking on farmers whose only assets are truth and decency. Once upon a time, truth and decency would have prevailed. It's an unequal, but a critical battle. Look, I always say that I find that those people who watch programs like this are not provincial, they're very international and really concerned about what's going on in the world. So that's why each week we'll go to our American correspondent, Peggy Grandy, the lady who was, as I've told you, the executive assistant to Ronald Reagan for 10 years. But her understanding of the American political scene is second to none. And what a mess that is at the moment. The leadership of the free world is under siege from within its own party. Peggy, thank you for joining us again. But this administration now, Biden, lurches from failure to failure. Kamala Harris has given an interview with the Wall Street Journal and she's declined to say whether she thinks Joe Biden will run for re-election in 2024, insisting they hadn't discussed the matter. But last month, the White House press secretary said it was Biden's intention to run again, despite his approval ratings stubbornly below 50%. So clearly, these two aren't talking. Peggy. Well, thank you, Alan, for having me on and congratulations on the success of your show. These two aren't talking and we see the disasters continuing to pile up. It's amazing this White House has accomplished anything and all they've accomplished continues to make things worse. And so Kamala Harris is the only person less likable than Joe Biden and surprisingly less likable even than Hillary Clinton ever was, which is a remarkable achievement 
probably the only thing this White House has achieved. It'd be, it's laughable, though, isn't it? Seriously, that Biden would be a candidate at 82. Following up what we talked about last week, though, and you mentioned Hillary Clinton, where is Hillary Clinton at the moment in all of this? Should Kamala Harris continue to fail and Biden continue to cognitively decline? Well, poor Hillary Clinton, we see her as the perpetual understudy. It's like she's waiting in the wings, always waiting to be beckoned out to the stage to thunder us applause and take her bow. And I just don't know that it's ever going to happen for her. In fact, she's so self-absorbed and needs the attention so greatly that she last week read her acceptance speech that she would have given had she become president, which we know she didn't. <laughs> she gave it very tearfully and reflectively, and no one cared. It shows what a bad place the Democratic Party is in. Yes, even I know. CNN, CNN even put out a list of 11 candidates that could replace Biden. So that is a friendly, and they're already talking about who's beyond Biden. This White House is in a desperate place. Yeah, well I believe that leaders aren't in the past, but they're going to need somebody waiting in the wings because they're going to need it. And I don't think it'll be Hillary Well, just Clinton. on the, no, well, just on this, I mean, there's this Biden's Build Back Better public spending bill. Now, Joe Manchin, the centrist Democrat senator of West Virginia, has confirmed now he will not back the bill because of the $2 trillion cost. And he said it could lead to increases in the rate of inflation. But Biden needs the support of all 50 Democrat senators to get the bill passed. So does Senator Manchin's refusal put the bill's chance of success in jeopardy? Further crisis for the Democrats. Well, this bill as is, is dead. And the White House is acting like they're disappointed and surprised at this. They should be surprised by nothing. Joe Manchin has told them all along that he would not vote for this bill the way that it was. They've pushed it back to January. They've been in denial. Now they're facing reality. This is a bill that will not age well. A lot of these senators are going home to their states for the holidays. They're going to hear from people how unpopular this is. People are worried about the excess spending. They know that there's been gimmicks in order to do the accounting. Even the Congressional Budget Office has said that it's not zero cost. It's in the trillions of dollars. And I think Ronald Reagan said it best and we all believed him when he said the closest thing to eternal life on earth is a government program. That's it. People see through this. That's it's it. not going to pass. I don't think Manchin's going to waver and I think there's others who are going to join him. But see, Peggy, I just talked a, a few minutes ago, editorialised on this whole business about climate change. This is staggering that this bill, I just say to our viewers, Peggy's aware of this, contains more than $500 billion US dollars for tax breaks and spending aimed at curbing carbon dioxide emissions. This is the largest federal expenditure ever to, quote-unquote, combat climate change. $500,000 million, Peggy. Someone's off their tree. Yeah. And the American people see through this. This is something they don't want. The Democrats are acting as if they have this overwhelming mandate to transform America. And actually, they're governing by one of the smallest margins of leadership power ever. And so the American people elected Joe Biden to be a uniter. And all we see is coming out of this White House is division. And as for this climate bill, part in the build back better or build back broker, as we like to call it, you know, a lot of it is 
people snitching on each other about green violations. It's expanding the reach and the scope of government in ways the American people don't want. And frankly, if America turned off its lights entirely and didn't run any cars, it wouldn't make a huge heck of a big difference because of India, China, and others who are the yeah. global polluters. Absolutely. And just summing up this issue, what political damage is this inflicting on the Democrats? Well, it's catastrophic for them because they're already failing in, in the trust of the American people. And to put forth something and to really rely on this being their signature issue and to have it fail so miserably, and not because of the Republicans, but because of their own party, this is really the final nail in the coffin of the Democrats. Yeah, I mean, party when you get Joe, Man Joe Manchin wrote, Joe Man the man, he wrote a statement saying that the Democrats were quite, these are his words, to dramatically reshape our society in a way that leaves our country even more vulnerable to the threats we face. Now, I mean, this is from their in, in within. I mean, they're warring within, are they not? Yes, they absolutely are. And actually, the American people side with Joe Manchin and they see him as being somebody who is responsible to look at the issues to, he said he tried so hard to get to a place where he could support it. And he just couldn't because he knew he would have to go back and face the voters of West Virginia. And he couldn't look them in the eye and tell them that this benefited them. Right. The American people agree with Joe Absolutely. Manchin. Well, then just taking on from there on the economy, now, the news keeps getting worse for Biden and the Democratic Party. Since he took office, there is this thing in America, I say to our viewers, for the misery index, and it's risen substantially. And that tends to augur badly for Biden's re-election because Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush both got tossed out of office after one term when their misery index scores rose. Now, as the name suggests, this metric measures economic misery and it's made up of, simple, the percentage who are unemployed, plus, plus the percentage inflation rate. So currently that's at 11, 4.2% unemployment, 6.8% inflation, which is up from 7.7% in January when Biden took office. Now, Peggy, this is the stuff voters care about. It absolutely is. And, you know, Joe Biden continues to be so disconnected from reality. From the White House podium, he says time and time again that the economy is booming. It's stronger than ever. We have the best economy in the world. But the American people see it differently. They know they're paying more for gas, for food, for heating. They know the reality of the rising prices and the inflation. They know their dollar doesn't go as far as it, it used to. And, you know, the Democrat Party, for all their talk about claiming to care about those who live at the poverty line or work for minimum wage. If you think about even a $20 increase in filling your gas tank, for the CEO of a major corporation, that's pocket change. But for the person who's trying to decide whether they're going to fill their tank so they can drive to work or buy their child a Christmas present or maybe cut back on food, $20 makes a huge Absolutely. difference. And so it just shows that Absolutely. Joe Biden and his party are completely out of touch of the harm that they are causing the average American family. But see, Peggy, if you add together, you mentioned some of those things, you add together inflation, the coronavirus cases, Biden's foreign policy mess, and we're talking from Afghanistan on, I mean, 20 House Democrats have said they won't seek re-election. I mean, aren't people escaping the sinking ship? Surely all the Republicans have to do is to sell the non-success stories. You mentioned it. The price of milk's going up. The price of gas is going up. Your dollar isn't going very far. And the Democrats 
have only got a majority of eight in the House and the Senate is deadlocked. Yeah. Well, I think as as Democrats jump ship, I think even Nancy Pelosi will eventually announce that she's going to retire. She knows she's going to lose the House. She does not want to give up the gavel as speaker. And she's certainly not going to want to come in as the minority leader under a speaker. Uh, Kevin McCarthy or somebody else. And so I really think she's going to press forward on this agenda. And it, once she accepts the fact that it's not going to pass, I think we're going to hear that she is yeah. retiring. Well, it is a sinking ship. The American ship. people are ready to throw all these people out. And the Republicans shouldn't take anything for granted. We need to elect good, smart, savvy leaders who are committed patriots, who are committed to public service. And, you know, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, the governor-elect, provided a great template. He saw the momentum of anger of parents about critical race theory in the schools, and he smartly jumped in front of the parade. And so I think that's a good role model. You know, education is going to be a huge issue. And maybe for the first time in a long time, if ever, Republicans can own that issue. Absolutely. Same here. Same here. Look, but then there's the WAPA, the vaccine mandate. Now, this federal appeals court panel has allowed Biden's vaccine mandate for larger private employers to go ahead. There was a two-to-one decision by a panel of judges last Friday, reversed a decision by a federal judge in a separate court that had stopped the mandate nationwide. Peggy, what's the mood about all of this? I understand that Republican politicians and business groups say they'll appeal the decision in the Supreme Court, but this is a sweeping COVID mandate which will apply to about 84 million American workers at mid-sized and large companies. Private sector companies with 100 or more workers must require their employees to be fully vaccinated against COVID or be tested for the virus weekly and wear masks. How's this going down? Well, it's not popular at all. The American people are done with COVID. They don't want any more mandates. They don't want to exchange jabs for jobs. And we even see this coming out of Democrats. And in the last week or so, we saw the Democrat governor of Colorado come out and basically declare COVID is over in Colorado. If you haven't gotten vaccinated, it's your own fault. But we are going to open and go back to life. And I think this will be an ongoing battle in the courts. The states are saying it's fine if you give us these mandates, but then you have to provide federal funding so that we can actually enforce and implement them. We know the federal government is not going to do this. So I think this is going to be a game of hot potato back and forth in the courts for a long time. But more and more governors are repealing mandates at the state level and the American people on both sides of the political aisle are done with COVID. Absolutely. But then you've got this business with employers. Now, this is only for employers with over 100 staff. So may people leave that employment and go to a small business with fewer than 100 people to escape the mandate. How does that make sense? Well, wouldn't this be the first time that actually small businesses have benefited from government mandates under COVID? Because we saw during the pandemic, the shutdowns and the mandates that forced small businesses to either close down or a lot of them closed indefinitely. And there was this favoritism toward the big box stores that they made accommodations for them to remain open. So COVID has really unfairly punished the small business owners. So it would be nice if the mandates didn't apply to them, but you know government overreach. Once they get their their tentacles on one part, they're going to go for the rest. So I think it would be a short-lived reprieve 
if these mandates actually do go through for the big businesses. Good on you, Peggy. Wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for your contribution to the program. Have a wonderful Christmas to you and your family. We'll be in touch, I know, and we'll talk to you in the new year. Thank you, Alan, so much. God bless you. God bless you too. There she is. We love her, don't we? Peggy Grande. And as I said, just go to the website. It's all there, alanjones.com.au or Alan Jones Australia, the Facebook page, and you can make your comments. We love hearing from you. All right, time to hear what you have to say. And remember, you can have your voice on every platform. Just go to the website, alanjones.com.au. Go to my Facebook page, Alan Jones Australia. And on YouTube, you can express your opinion. You can like, you can share, share with your friends. Tell them we are the voice of the voiceless. Last night, Annie said, the whole damn woke education system needs to totally disappear. In relation to my editorial re-premier Perrottet's cabinet reshuffle, Anne said, I hope he stands his ground the Prime Minister has done nothing, has not led this country at all. He's just left the Premiers to do what they want. So very disappointed in the PM. John said, hi, Alan. Need you in action more than ever. More than ever before in our history. Thank you for your great service to the nation. Thank you for that. On last night's interview with David Flint over voter ID, Mike said, very good point this, Labor would lose thousands of votes in marginal seats if voter ID were introduced. Vic said... I hope you have another fantastic week on air. Keep up the great work. Put some of these politicians in their places. Vic, we certainly won't be messing around. And on last week's interview about Julian Assange with George Christensen, Messi said, as a migrant in this beautiful country of ours, I'm ashamed of all Australians. This man tried to help the world by exposing the world government's injustices and you so-called Australians let him rot Shame on you, Australia. Free Julian Assange now. That's just some of what you were saying amongst the thousands and thousands of messages. And yes, we do digest them all. Now, look, I do concede that when you read the headlines, it's understandable that people are anxious about the latest coronavirus Omicron. There will be another one of these National Cabinet meetings tomorrow where premiers will urge the Prime Minister to cut the time that people have to wait for booster shots. I must commend the Prime Minister for standing his ground, by the way, opposing mask mandates. I stress I'm no health expert. I just read, but the booster shots seem to make sense. There's now talk of fast tracking. Now, what that means is the time between the second vaccine dose and a booster shot has been five months. And now the move is afoot to cut the time between the second vaccine dose and the booster shot to four months. Nonetheless, what doesn't make the headlines are the many observations that this Omicron variant causes milder illness. The Morrison government wants the states to keep their vaccination hubs running throughout the booster program. And the federal government is receiving advice from the Australian Technical Advisory Group on immunisation that boosters be brought forward from six to five months. But at the National Cabinet, the Premiers will apparently ask for that to be shortened to four months. But here we go. It's understood that this mob now, cop this, where will this end? The Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation will be advising the government to, quote, consider whether a three-dose rather than a two-dose course meets requirements for full vaccination status, unquote. In other words, a move afoot that you won't be considered fully vaccinated unless you get three doses. Now, GPs and pharmacists have been turning people away who are seeking boosters, either because they don't have any vaccine doses or patients are requesting them earlier than five months. The Prime Minister has written to state and territory leaders to tell them that 
there are sufficient doses to ensure that everyone in Australia who is eligible for a booster dose can receive it over the holiday period. But the move to redefine what fully vaccinated means from two doses to three doses does follow the example of the United States, Israel and Singapore. But I'll tell you what, they've kept it quiet, haven't they? I don't know what you make about any of that. But meanwhile, let me say again, the New South Wales Premier Perrottet seems to be way out in front as a genuine leader on this issue. Only on Monday, Perrottet made the point, fear defeats us all. We have to rise above it, calm, resolute and united. He also said that, quote, the age-old temptation of playing up the fear factor is just too good for some to pass up. But he said fear and division can only hold us back. Dominic Perrottet continues to urge calm amid pressure from some health so-called experts for increased restrictions. Now, admittedly, there were 3,057 new cases today in New South Wales, but the number of very sick people is much lower than it was three months ago. I repeat, the number of very sick people is much lower than it was three months ago. On September 21, there were 244 people in intensive care in New South Wales with the virus, compared with 33 on Monday, December 20. There are 261 people in hospital, up slightly from Sunday to 27. But that compares with 1,266 people requiring treatment at the peak of the Delta outbreak. Dominic Perrottet rightly said it highlights the importance of being vaccinated and of the 33 people in the ICU, 26 of the 33 are unvaccinated. Mr Perrottet said people should wear masks in crowded spaces, but the time for government mandates has passed. Says the New South Wales Premier, it's time for personal responsibility. We're treating the people of our state like adults. I completely understand, he said, that people are concerned. But it's our job as a government to provide confidence. Well, how refreshing is this? He says, there will always be new variants of this virus. The pandemic is not going away. We need to learn to live alongside it. And the former Deputy National Chief Medical Officer, Nick Coatsworth, also a refreshing figure, amidst all of this alarmism and fear said, and I quote, strict isolation rules for vaccinated, mask-wearing healthcare workers are unsustainable. Of the virus, he said, the former National Chief Medical Officer, Nick Coatsworth, he said, it's actually pretty hard to transmit in a hospital environment, unquote. Let's face it, we can't have it both ways. The public have copped a lot. New South Wales now has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. Politicians' health authorities said vaccination was the pathway out of the pandemic. Dominic Perrottet is standing up to the bedwetters and to a lesser extent so too, to his credit, is the Prime Minister. Now in Britain, one cabinet minister has already said he will resign if another lockdown comes on. And Moderna has said its booster offers a strong response against Omicron. The state of play as things stand is most probably twofold. Are the bedwetters who want to accept all the pessimistic assumptions that Omicron is as severe as Delta, are they to prevail? But in a note to clients, JP Morgan Chase & Co, the American multinational investment bank and financial services holding company, which is headquartered in New York, with assets of 2.6 trillion and operations worldwide and a history spanning over 200 years, who've arrived where they are as a result of responsible thinking and advice, have stated in a note to clients, and I quote, evidence from South Africa suggests that Omicron infections are milder, unquote. They made the point that the Omicron wave, quote, would be manageable without further restrictions, unquote. 
Let's go back to South Africa, which I mentioned last Thursday. Data there from the Gauteng province suggests that Omicron is now in decline, which ends the theory that Omicron doubles every few days without fail. South Africa are reporting that their hospitals are nowhere near as busy as they were during previous waves of the virus. Data from Denmark published yesterday shows the hospitalisation rate for patients with Omicron is 60% lower than it's been with other variants. Is it just coincidence that the focus on real-world data from South Africa, for example, seems to have faded into the background, just as the data starting to tell a more positive story? Which brings us, thankfully, back to Dominic Perrottet. It's a time of personal responsibility. We're treating people of our state like adults. He said, I completely accept that people are concerned, but it's our job as a government to provide confidence. There will always be new variants of this virus, he said. The pandemic's not going away. We need to learn to live alongside it. Well, Dominic Perrottet got it absolutely right when he said yesterday, the age-old temptation of playing up the fear factor is just too good for some to pass up, but fear and division can only hold us back, unquote. Well, I'm sure I speak for millions of Australians when I say we've had a gutful of fear and alarmism. Let us take responsibility for our own health and let people get on with their lives. Look, I don't know about you, but wherever I go, people want to pull me up to express their support for the often outspoken stance taken by the One Nation leader in New South Wales, Mark Latham. I always say, if only there were more Mark Lathams. You'll get your weekly dose of him on this program, and we don't apologise for the heavy focus on education. Mark, thank you for joining us again. Can we just revisit, though, a couple of the points that you made last week? And I'll be interested in what reaction you had to the issue you discussed here. There's been a cabinet reshuffle, and we'll talk about that later in New South Wales, but you argued on the program last week that Dominic Perrottet could act boldly and appoint masters of their craft, though were your words, to the cabinet, and that would be consistent with the New South Wales Constitution. He could appoint ministers who are not necessarily members of the parliament because that is not a constitutional requirement in New South Wales. Ministers can come, you said, from outside the parliament, allowing the executive governor to draw on expertise and experience from the broader community. Has all this fallen on deaf ears? Well, it has, Alan. They've actually increased the size of the state cabinet from 24 to 26. They wouldn't have six top-notch ministers there, let alone 26, and it's not really a cabinet at that size. It's a mass meeting. So I, I think the truth is Dominic Perrottet um, is uh, from a grouping inside the New South Wales Liberal Party that's actually the minority grouping. The numbers are held, uh, you know, I dread to say this, by Matt Keane mm. and the so-called moderates who are yes. really green Liberals. And you look at some of the appointments, uh, how they've kept Jeff Lee there, uh, beggars belief, uh, why they've gone to 26 ministers. Uh, Keane gets to keep energy. That oh. in itself is an atrocity. How yep. can he be the treasurer? with an eye to uh, cost savings if he's uh, turned the energy portfolio into an ATM for renewable rent seekers. So no minister will come forward with any cost savings. He'll say, well, the Treasurer is spending all this money protected in energy. Why should we bother with savings in our portfolio? So Perrottet operates from a position of weakness and, mm. unfortunately, that's reflected in this uh, cabinet reshuffle. In politics, there's this cricket analogy, isn't there, where we talk about governments, whether, they, whether or not they bat down to number three or four or five. That is, how many good players are there in the team? Now, you made the point last week, the talent pool is surely shallow. Well, it is, and we've lost expertise in politics. Uh, there used to be a cadre of MPs on both sides of 
politics who'd specialise in certain areas of policy. Not all of them were high flyers. I can remember a guy called Alan Rocher, yes. uh, a Liberal from MP WA. from WA, yep. who knew more about the Tax Act in Canberra than the Tax Commissioner. And to listen to him in the Parliament, his expertise on tax policy was quite amazing. There's no comparable people now like that uh, in the Parliament. You know, I've, mm. I've tried at my level to um, specialise in education policy because the school's outcomes have been declining and school education is so important for the future of the country. But you don't find many MPs now. Perhaps it's the influence of social media, Twitter and all mm. that. They see themselves as generalists and they have no expert policy uh, grounding or research. But what an indictment, isn't it, of the political process where there are people in very significant positions with very, very attractive salaries and staff whose talent hasn't earned them a Guernsey? No, well, it hasn't. That's why I was saying go outside the parliament to find genuine experts, high-quality people who can solve some of these um, uh, emerging or long-standing policy problems. Uh, Perrottet's got 26 ministers from a combined Liberal National Party room of 62. So your odds of being a minister in New South Wales are about 50%. You know, it's an even money bet to become a minister uh, mm. once uh, you find mm. yourself in government. So, you know, the, the, the talent pool is very shallow, it's very limited, and they need to broaden it in a number of ways. Otherwise, you get just seat warmers yes. there, ministers... Well, never take a risk, never have an original idea, yeah. never do anything. Well, I've said over and over again, I mean, you applying that principle that you've talked about going outside the government, you should be the education minister. We've talked about this for months and months now. I mentioned yesterday this Australian Teacher Workforce Data Report released on Friday by the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership. It shows that nearly half the nation's maths and foreign languages, this is the nation, half of them are not qualified to teach the subject, half the nation's teachers. So our viewers' children are sitting in the classroom and the maths teacher or the French teacher or the German teacher is not qualified to teach the subject. Who on earth is addressing that and who knows how to address it? Well, no-one's addressing it. We've got a teacher shortage in general, but we've got a specialist teacher shortage in particular. And, Alan, what's happened uh, over many decades, really, on both sides of politics right around the, the, the country has been a sweetheart deal between state governments and the teacher unions whereby the, the unions have sacrificed wage increases for the most luxurious work conditions you'll ever get. But for instance, the teachers in New South Wales have just finished two pupil-free days, ostensibly mm. to get ready for lessons next year. Well, you do that at the beginning of next year, wouldn't yes, you? And yes. these two pupil-free days become Christmas parties. Um, so they're wasted days, but they're part of a trade-off where the state government hasn't wanted to pay decent salaries for teachers and regrettably, they haven't uh, undertaken performance-based pay. I mean, if you want to teach, uh, you want to treat teaching as a proper profession and attract bright young people and, and, and develop a career, uh, you need to have professional standards. And one of those is, if you're a teacher with a high level of performance as measured in the classroom, you get bonus money for that. And if you're a poor performing teacher, mm. you need to go do something yeah. else. So yeah. if you don't teach it as a, treat it as a proper profession, then young people these days look at teaching as the equivalent of pastoral care or social work yes. rather than something that will have a, a decent reward going forward. Yes. I mean, this was a survey, Mark, of 18,000 teachers. A quarter of them plan to quit teaching before retirement age. Men 
who make up only 22% of the teaching workforce and young teachers are the likeliest to want to leave the profession and 61% blame mental health issues or stress. Now, the problem here is discipline. I mean, you and I know the teacher has had all the authority to discipline a vulgar or unruly child, virtually taken away from him. And some of the stuff, the language and behaviour that many male and female teachers have to put up with, especially female, is beyond disgraceful. I mean, I'd be calling in the police. This is the first starting point to a good education. You can't have education without content and discipline. Well, uh, the disciplinary standards are getting weaker, weaker every year. Uh, Sarah Mitchell in New South Wales has introduced a policy which is basically along the lines of we're expelling or suspending too many Indigenous students, let's reduce the suspension period and keep them in the schools. Now, that's not fair on the students who want to do their work and, and, and uh, the disruptive students uh, distract them from that. And uh, policies based on skin colour will always fail. Yes. And the yes. disciplinary standards and capacity to suspend a student for a decent stuff. period of time in New mm. South Wales is next to zero. Mm. These kids are a protected species. Yes. Uh, we don't have the uh, behavioural uh, schools, special schools in place mm. where the uh, kids with multiple troubles in life can go to a special school, have their issues sorted out, clearing the way, importantly, in the classroom for the kids who want to do the work and do yes. the study to be able to concentrate without these galahs uh, interrupting all but the see, time. But see, Mark, for parents watching us here tonight, I mean, you've got to say this slowly. This survey demonstrated that 46% of teachers are teaching subjects in which they have no special skill. A quarter of the maths teachers said they had no training in maths. 20% of science teachers, no training in science. And yet we're spending $114 billion a year as a nation on education. Mark, what's going on? Well, the schools are rolling in these uh, Gonski rivers of gold. Uh, I visited a lot of schools over the last couple of years and they all say they're amply resourced. The Gonski money is meant. They're throwing um, resources at projects that really don't justify it just to clear their budget. So we've got that problem of schools that are overfunded while at the same time our national results have gone That's south. Dreadful. Um, they've dreadful. Uh, deteriorated, well, particularly well, on the international hmm. scale. We're in maths, science, uh, English. Everywhere. We're the laughing stock. We're about the level of Pakistan. Yeah, and, and so, you know, we're a joke at that level. Yeah, and that's because that's not a priority in the classroom. Now, Mark, what are we to make of this letter from the Deputy Principal of your Minor Beach Public School? And I quote, Dear parents, carer, as part of our child protection unit, year two classes, these are seven-year-olds, will participate on a lesson about gender diversity this lesson provides students with the opportunity to explore, remember seven or eight, the topic of gender and gender diversity. Gender, the letter says, refers to the way you feel on the inside. It might be expressed by how you dress or how you behave. And for some people, these things may change over time. The lesson is supported by the Anti-Discrimination Act to ensure that school is an inclusive place for all students. If you do not want your child to participate in this lesson, please sign and return the permission slip below. Regards, and it's signed the Deputy Principal. I mean, Mark, is this what we're doing to our children in the classroom at age seven or eight? Not English or maths, but gender reassignment. Well, Alan, it's the sickness of adult teachers wanting to impose their own political views on little kids. 
And, uh, you know, if, if, if adults uh, want to change their gender, I regard that as their business. Yep. But at age seven, a child protection unit really is about stranger danger. That's what it's about in year two. Not the idea that gender refers to the way you feel on the inside and you can change your gender according to those feelings. And, and the report I've had from Yamina Beach Public School is that um, the, 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 the students who participated in this lesson came out confused and distressed. The uh, opt-out uh, permission slip was only sent out at the last minute. It should have been opt-in. In fact, this shouldn't be taught at all. No, not at all. Uh, and it gives not a complete lie to Sarah Mitchell, the education yeah. minister, who said a hundred times they don't teach gender fluidity in New oh. South Wales schools. Well, at your minor beach, the minister's caught out lying. Absolutely. The department's Absolutely. caught out defending the indefensible. And quite frankly, any teacher pushing gender fluidity ideology upon seven-year-olds should be marched straight out the door. Is this child abuse or child protection? It's child abuse. It's not child protection to say to a, a seven-year-old, uh, here's uh, your child protection lesson and we're going to tell you that you're a little girl, yeah. you can be a boy tomorrow, yes. or you're a little boy, you yes. can be a girl mm. the day after. I mean, this is a form of child abuse yep. in that it leaves the students confused and distressed. And the letter goes on to say it's supported by the Anti-Discrimination Act in New South Wales. There's no such thing. They're spreading a falsehood to say that the Anti-Discrimination Act justifies gender fluidity teaching to seven-year-olds in state schools. That's completely false. The teacher who's put this out has no place in the education system. And I feel desperately sorry for the parents mm. there who've complained about it, for their children who are suffering a form of child abuse mm. from adults who should know better. Absolutely. See, I've been asking for the last week and a half, Mark, what kind of Australia do we want Australia to be? Just before we go, I note the UK Supreme Court has rejected plans for gender-neutral passports. Now, are we going to get this stuff here? I mean, you've said a passport identifies you in a foreign land. Part of that identification is to know the gender of the individual. That's biological. And the UK Supreme Court made that point, did it not? And as I think you've said, passports aren't some kind of fun document you can change every other day. So basically the court order from the UK Supreme Court is saying you need to be male or female. Now, there'll be room, of course, for transgender, but the point that you're making is, and the court is making, you can't be saying, I'm non-binary. I'm not telling you whether I'm a male or a female. It depends on what I feel like when I wake up in the morning. Are we headed in that direction? Well, we've arrived, Alan. Uh, the court order is common sense, of course, but it's not being taught at Yamina Beach Public School on the central coast of New South Wales. Uh, here are seven-year-old students being told if they have a feeling of being a certain gender, that's what constitutes gender, not the biological science. I mean, all these lefties say, constantly say to us, follow the science, follow the science. Mm. Well, not on biology. And if you want to know why our mass English and science results have gone down the tube in New South Wales, we'll have a look at this Yamina Beach Absolutely. letter that's gone out Absolutely. to say instead of genuine uh, instruction that the students Sarah see. These Mitchell. are kids who can't read and write, by and large, they're being taught about gender fluidity. And Sarah Mitchell, where are you with this is going on? Mark Latham has made this. Alan, where are you? Alan, she, this is another parity weakness. She survived the reshuffle. Mm. She is one of the greatest logs, ineffective, hopeless, useless, that you'll mm. ever find in any education system. I warned Sarah Mitchell dozens of times that gender fluidity is being taught in our school. And her response is to say, no, it's not. Yeah, well, it. if she looks at your minor beach, she owes the children and the parents 
there and around New South Wales a massive apology. You can't have a minister who doesn't even know what's happening inside our schools. Yeah. Good on you, Mark. Look, one quick one. We're running out of time, but last week we talked about vaccination mandates. Then following that, Dominic Perrottet said the vaccinated and unvaccinated will be treated the same. You were saying that there are thousands and thousands of people here and across Australia losing their jobs if they are not vaccinated. What's the current status? Are the jobs still being lost? Well, they're still being lost and it's a dismal Christmas for them that uh, for making their own health choice, which had been a standard labour right, an industrial relations right, uh, they've lost their job and they'll be looking for something uh, fresh in the new year. Now, there are jobs out there, but I mean, if you've trained as a teacher, a police officer, a nurse, um, a fiery, uh, that's your profession mm. and that's what you've dedicated your vocational career to. It's a tragedy mm. to lose your job. But not only that, Alan. Perrottet said the restrictions were off, that the vaccinated and the unvaccinated could go to shops and so forth. The State Library of New South Wales still requires proof of vaccination to get in there to borrow a book Just and go to the participate in the library. The, uh, the uh, Powerhouse Museum at Aldermo, the same. So it's an example of where these state agencies, they don't even follow the Premier's right, uh, press it. release. They don't even follow the state government policy. They're a law unto themselves. And if the government ministers don't actually enforce these policies then the uh, unvaccinated uh, taxpayers are locked out of things as basic as museums and libraries. Yeah. Mark, I just want to thank you on behalf of people across Australia, really, for the phenomenal work you do intellectually and in terms of research and in policy presentation. You've just got to keep talking and I just wish you and your family a very, very happy Christmas. Hope we have a successful 2022 and we'll be together again on the program in the new year. All the best, Mark. Yeah, all the best to you, Alan, and, and I hope this new venture of yours is a massive success. The people are crying out for straight talk, for information, for the sort of issues that we've raised tonight. Good and the namby-pamby people in the uh, mainstream media who won't touch a lot of these issues. This, this uh, letter from your Minor Beach uh, Public School, uh, there are journalists there scared of talking about these things, even mm. though it's a form of child abuse. So, Alan, you speak the truth and you're fearless and I'll always be here to try Thank and uh, help out. Thank you, all Mark. The best. Always grateful. All there is, Mark Latham. We love him, you love him. But you can make some comments. Just go to the website, alanjones.com.au, and you make your own comments there and we love to read them. Well, look, just before we go, I think it's time for governments to start talking about the things that really matter. With Christmas coming up, holiday time, people travelling on the roads, yet our road toll is on track to increase despite the coronavirus lockdowns. Sensibly, the medical and motoring sectors are demanding that all levels of government treat all vehicle-related deaths with the same seriousness shown towards coronavirus. It is a staggering thought, isn't it? With millions of people restricted to their homes in lockdown in a bid to stop the spread of coronavirus, yet the number of people killed on the roads across Australia increased to 1,126 in the 12 months to the end of November. That's a 1.4% increase over the same period last year. Now, deaths on the Queensland roads were 10.2% higher, 291, the largest number of deaths on Queensland roads in five years the largest this year of any state or territory. Deaths on the Victorian roads increased by 6.5%. New South Wales defied the trend, deaths down 8.6%. That's deaths down by 25 to 266, still an awful number. The deaths of drivers in the 12 months to November, 550. But we've been in lockdown. That figure is an increase of eight on the corresponding period last year. There has been thankfully a fall in passenger deaths 
which are now 23% lower over the past five years, but that might be related to the greater safety in new car models. But the statistics are anything but encouraging. Motorcyclist deaths are up almost 16%, 219 to the end of November. And of course, there's been a surge of motorcycle purchases since the start of the pandemic. Sales across the first nine months of this year were 37% up on the same period in 2019. A decade ago, transport ministers signed off on a national road strategy and the aim was to cut the road toll by 30%. I mean, it's a waste of time if nothing's done to achieve the target. Now we're going to have to thrust upon us another national road strategy, committing to a 50% reduction in fatalities by 2030 and a 30% reduction in serious injuries to fewer than 29,000 a year. Sensibly, the chair of the National Trauma Committee of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, Dr John Crozier, has said, quote, not only has the country failed to reach its road toll reduction target, but data on the accidents related to serious injuries were up to four years out of date, unquote. But injuries are costing at least $30 billion a year. Think of the NDIS. The new road safety strategy apparently will not be addressing the lack of nationally consistent information on road deaths. What the hell is it doing? Dr Crozier from the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons says the death toll is a silent epidemic that should have the same sort of government focus as the pandemic. He said, quote, through the coronavirus pandemic, all the jurisdictions were galvanised into action, worked together, sharing information, and the Commonwealth provided the vaccines. Yet he said, here is a silent epidemic occurring on our roads. More people have died on the roads in the last year than have died from coronavirus. It's a perfectly sensible point. Our road toll is on track to increase despite the coronavirus lockdowns. And the medical and motoring sectors are saying, all levels of government should treat vehicle-related deaths and injuries with the same seriousness shown towards the pandemic. They won't. Therefore, we come back to those two words, don't we? Personal responsibility. It's Christmas time, vacation time, holiday, to holiday time. Two things cost lives when you're behind the wheel of a vehicle. Inexperience and speed. All of us should address both. My advice is drive as if every person on the road is a moron and say to yourself, I don't want to be part of the next 1,126 to lose their lives on the roads. Which brings me to the thought for the night. Don't think that because an accident hasn't happened to you that it can't happen. That's it from me tonight. Stay with us. You've been wonderful. Wherever you are listening from around the world, the website is there, alanjones.com.au. The podcast for tonight's program is put out at 6am tomorrow morning and my Alan Jones comment at 7am. And I'll see you tomorrow night, yeah, to do it all again. I was just thinking, didn't know what day it was. I'll see you all tomorrow night to do it all again. So good night on Tuesday night.